The following program is a paid presentation. The views and or opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect those of Starnes Media Group or KWAM. Jim Shoemaker, Ted Miner, and Drew Johnson are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services Incorporated. Securities dealer, member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. Helping you make the most of your money. It's time for Talk Money. Here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, good morning and welcome to the program. Whether you're a baby boomer or a millennial, it doesn't seem to matter. Always a common concern is money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. Welcome to Talk Money. Well, today we have a, just a jam-packed program. We have our special guest. He's a very good friend and does a great job for us on a regular basis. Kurt Zarnowski is here to talk about changes in Social Security, and we're going to talk about a big change, and that's the possibility of seeing uh, the largest number, uh, the largest increase in COLA since 1983. Now, the reality is some of you are going, what is COLA? Do I get that to drink? No, we're going to find out from Kurt what COLA is all about. Also, we're going to be talking some additional subjects from Social Security. And Drew Johnson is here also to help us understand some facts that you need to know about investing in the stock market. And this is very critical. We're going to dive in and get very, very uh, Drew's opinionated when it comes about that. So you need to figure out his opinion in that, that part of the program. But first and absolutely, well, I don't want to carry this too far. This is my friend from the Northeast. He is here with us today. Welcome, Mr. Zarnowski, to the program, sir. Hey, Jim. Great to be back with you. How you doing? I'm doing wonderful. I mean, we're getting some great weather. It's cooling down. We've had this hot summer. You guys have not even... I, you can't even describe hot up there, can you? Well, you know, it's summertime and the living is easy. Fish are jumping and the cotton is high. Your daddy's rich. Your mom's good looking. Uh, hush, little baby. Don't you Don't cry. Don't you cry. Wow. You know what? We can't, we can't start the program any better than that. Yeah. I mean... Way to go, my friend. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, there's so much news about what's going on. In fact, I was reading Bloomberg with a bunch of guys. They've done some research about the cost of living increase. We've seen inflation go up. We're up at the five, five and a half. I've heard the number six. So I really want to ask you, my go-to guy when it comes to Social Security, what do you think? And first of all, I guess let's describe COLA since we know it's not a drink. What is COLA when it sure. comes to Social so, Security? You know, it all goes back to the one of the real benefits of the Social Security program, Jim, as we talked about on the program many times, is that you can't outlive your Social Security payments. It's akin to a traditional defined benefit pension. Become eligible for benefits. You're going to collect each month until you pass away. Uh, and in some cases, uh, even after you pass away, but those aren't the Social Security Administration's proudest moments. Um, but the other thing that's a hallmark of the Social Security program is, unlike many defined benefit pension programs that are out there, it does have a guaranteed built-in inflation protection through the COLA, or Cost of Living Adjustment Program. Now, going back to the beginnings of the Social Security Program, which incidentally just celebrated its 86th birthday, FDR signed Social Security into law August 14, 1935. But when 
Ida Mae Fuller of Ludlow, Vermont, received her first $24.35 payment. She received that same amount for the next 10 years. There was no inflation adjustment built in to Social Security payments. And once you started to collect in the early days of the program, it was anticipated you'd receive that same amount of money for the rest of your life. But Congress recognized that inflation happens, and so in the then early to middle days of the program, they would give Social Security beneficiaries a periodic adjustment to their monthly payments, trying to account for the fact that some things certainly were more expensive than when they started to collect. That continued until 1972, when as part of the 1972 amendments to the Social Security Act, Congress enacted this automatic guaranteed cost of living adjustment to Social Security beneficiaries. And the key thing was it was automatic, it was guaranteed, and it wasn't dependent on a year-over-year vote by members of Congress. That first automatic COLA went into place in the summer of 1975. And that COLA, throughout its history, has been based on an um, examination of something called the Consumer Price Index for Urban wage earners, and clerical workers. It's abbreviated the CPIW. It's a measure of inflation tracked by the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics. Now, initially, the COLA was given and showed up in Social Security payments that were received in July of a particular year. So July of 1975, Social Security beneficiaries received an 8% increase in the amount they had received in the prior year. And that July COLA payment date continued until 1983 when Congress changed the effective date of the COLA to be in January of the following year. So what hasn't changed, though, is the measure that Social Security uses in calculating the COLA. What they do these days is they compare the increase of that consumer price index for urban wage earners and clerical workers for the third quarter of one calendar year, i.e. July, August, September, with the CPIW for the following third quarter of the year, and whatever increase has occurred in that measure gets passed along to Social Security beneficiaries that they see in the payments that they receive in January of the following year. So in terms of determining how much of an increase Social Security beneficiaries will see in their January 22 payment, 2022 payments, we're in the midst of the measuring period. And it is July, August, September of this year will be compared to July, August, and September of last year. And whatever increase has occurred will be passed along. And speculation is now that in Inflation is increasing. We are looking at potentially the largest cost of living adjustment, as you had referenced, since 1982, when a 7.4% COLA was given. Fortunately, since that time, inflation has largely been under control, and we've been dealing with annual COLAs in the 2, 3, maybe 4% range. So we'll see what happens. But when asked to predict, um, I refer to the, the great philosopher Yogi Berra, who said, it ain't over till it's over. And uh, we're still in the, the, you know, the midst of the measuring period. And at the end of September, that will close. Um, Bureau of Labor Statistics will work their magic. And uh, in the middle of October, 
the Social Security Administration will announce what type of increase people will see. Well, that's the that's the question that I want to hear from you, because I think that's uh, the reality is there's so much more that I want to talk to you about. When we come back, I really want you, Kurt, to kind of uh, weigh in to what you think it's going to be. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I like to predict and, you you know, it's not over till it's over, but you can be you're better than Yoki Berra, partner. You're far better than that. If you just tuned in, my guest is Kurt Zarnowski, the president and founder of Zarnowski Consultants. And he is a frequent guest of ours, always does a great job talking to us about Social Security. And, of course, we're talking about the cost of living adjustment. And you need to know that number could be sizable this year as compared to many years over the last several years. So we're going to find out, and we'll talk some more about that. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a second. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments will fluctuate and when redeemed may be worth more or less than when originally invested. And welcome back. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money on KWAM, the mighty 990. My guest is Kurt Zarnowski. We are talking about Social Security. I mean, you put Zarnowski and Social Security, and they they mesh together uh, much better than Yogi Berra. No question asked there. That's off the table. And I am going to very quickly ask a question that I want to get Mr. Kurt to weigh in for us because when you think about the fact, and Kurt, you said this, and I think it's critical that everybody understand it. You used the term defined benefit pension plan. It is a defined benefit plan, and it has a cost of living increase. Now, just for just for briefness here, just describe that again so everybody understands the value of what you're talking about. Sure, absolutely, Jim. You know, and as, as I said at the beginning, it is one of the strengths of the Social Security program in that you can't outlive your benefits. You become eligible for a Social Security retirement payment, for example, and you'll receive that monthly payment for the remainder of your life, even if the total payments to you exceed the contributions that you had made to the system. But even more important is the fact that since 1975, Social Security has had, as part of its basic program, this inflation protection built into it, not designed to make people richer than they were when they started to collect, but to help maintain the purchasing power of the benefits that they've earned through their labors. And that's particularly important these days because life expectancy is increasing. If you're going to be living 20, 25, 30 years in retirement, if you don't have some measure of inflation protection built into your monthly income, well, the purchasing power that you'd work so hard to accrue is just going to fall off a cliff. And so there's a lot of discussion these days about whether that CPIW is the appropriate measure to use in determining how much of a COLA Social Security beneficiary should receive, and that's a discussion for a different day. But to me, I always hearken back to the fact it's just so important that there is this inflation measure built in, not requiring a separate annual vote on the part of Congress that people can depend on receiving that increase each year in the Social Security payments they receive in January. Now, they can get that increase as long as there has been an increase in that consumer price index urban wage earners and clerical workers 
from one year to the next. And in the past uh, decade or so, we've seen three examples of years when there was not a Social Security increase given. But that's because in that measuring period, the third quarter of one year to the third quarter of the following year, that CPIW hadn't increased or had decreased. Now, even in those periods where there was a decrease, the great news is there was no provision to take money away from people. But it is, I always think, just very reassuring to know that there is this inflation protection built in that once you start to collect, you're not going to outlive your benefits. And there is this inflation measure built in to protect the purchasing power of those hard-earned benefits that that people receive. And so valuable that people need to understand. It's a lot of moving parts to it, but the reality that July, August, and September of the third, that's the third quarter, is measured against the third quarter of the previous year, and what? I need a drum roll here, you know, whatever. What do you think it's going to be in 2022, Kurt? I mean, there's a lot of speculation, a lot of numbers, what do sure. you think? So, uh, Jim, uh, let me uh, couch my answer by <laughs> referring once again to the great philosopher Yogi Berra, <laughs> who once said, I'm very reluctant to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> Way to say it, my friend. Yeah. But having said that, I think we're probably, you know, and I'm no expert, I'm not an economist. But I play one on TV, right? Isn't that how the old line goes? <laughs> That's but right. I think you're probably, you know, based on speculation these days from people who look, you're probably looking at something in the neighborhood around 6, 6.1%, which, as you referenced, will be the highest adjustment since 1982. Now, the good news is that basically since that time, while the colas have been low, that's because inflation has largely been under control. You know, if you look at the late 70s, now I was around then, and Jim, I know you weren't because you're much younger than I am. <laughs> let's, yuck, go, yuck, yuck. let's don't uh, go there. But in 1979, the COLA was 9.9%, 1980, 14.3%, 1981, 11.2%, 1982, 7.4%. That's the period of runaway inflation. And runaway inflation is no good for anybody, as we all know. So the fact that inflation has been relatively under control is good news, but the fact that there is this, I keep harping on it, a guaranteed measure of protection that helps maintain the purchasing power even during periods of low inflation is good news for Social Security beneficiaries, a hallmark of the program, and a real advantage that shouldn't be overlooked when talking about how good a program the Social Security system is. Absolutely. My guest, Kurt Zarnowski with Zarnowski Consultants, and he has done a phenomenal job of helping us understand the COLA, the cost of living increase. My friend, thank you so much for today. We'll get you back when we know exactly what that number is going to be in. Be sure, done. And I we'll think see I'm it. scheduled to be back in November. We'll know what the number is, and we'll also be able to discuss some of the impact that COLA has on some of the other parts of the Social Security program, like the annual earnings test, the amount of money required to accrue a credit, and a whole bunch of things like that. Amen. That sounds great, my friend. Have Take a great care. day. Stay Thank you so much. Living is easy. All right. Thank you, sir. Uh, great friend. Great job. Always talks about it. And I have a guest coming on the program now in the studio. He is a retirement income certified professional, does a wonderful job, works with his clients. Ted Miner, welcome to the program. 
Thank you, Jim. I'd like to tell you what Yogi Berra said, but I don't know. <laughs> <what it was. laughs> Only Kurt keeps up with that. <laughs> Does a great job. Let me tell you what. We want to kind of talk some more about Social Security. And one of the things that I feel like that is so important for people to know, and you talk about it a lot, you actually help people understand this, and it's called restricted or the restricted application. And before we have to take a break, that's what I want to dive in, restricted application. Well, Jim, I'm glad you asked that well, question. Well, that's a tough question. I just lead right in with it. The, you know? uh, the Social Security Administration has a tremendous amount of rules. I wish uh, I used to know how many there were. Thousands. And, and it's difficult for a lot of people to, to keep up with them and understand them. But restricted application is, uh, is one of those things that actually uh, pertains to a person's age. They can qualify for a restricted application. I'll define it in a minute. As long as they were born sometime before January the 2nd of 1954. So someone that, say, is turning 68 this year. Uh, The Social Security benefit, the individual benefit, is something that everybody is familiar with. That's That's what they get a statement on. That's what they understand. That's what they usually calculate. But there's also another part of the Social Security benefit that is called a spousal benefit. And that spousal benefit is based on what your spouse makes, and it was put into play years ago when you usually had a wage earner and you had someone staying at home, and they created that benefit to be able to take care of that, that spouse that did not uh, earn a wage but stayed at home and, and needed a benefit for that. And those two benefits have different rules, different ways they grow, and uh, there has always been a coordination of benefits between spouses that can maximize the amount of money that you can receive. So with those two benefits today, you cannot turn on for, for the, a normal person, for, for I say a normal person, for a person that doesn't qualify for this age like, like myself. Uh, I cannot turn on just a spousal benefit or just the individual benefit. I have to take whatever is my best benefit if I turn it on. However, for a person that qualifies by being born before January the 2nd of 1954, they have an opportunity when they look at these two benefits to say, hey, I want to receive, I want to restrict, that's where the word comes from, I want to restrict my benefit to receive only the spousal portion of my benefit, and it allows for the individual benefit to continue to grow, and they can turn around three or four years later and turn on the individual benefit and really maximize a lot of their uh, Social Security benefits. You know, Ted, you, the way you describe that, that, is, that, that seems, again, as I listen to you, there's, there, it's complicated, but, but it's also something that person needs to understand. So what I would like to do is, is when we come back is really kind of dive into maybe give us an example where someone had okay. to walk right. through that sure. process. But there's a lot of questions that are asked. There's a ton of questions that people ask all the time, and I know that. And so maybe we can get into some of those questions that we've gotten here on the studio from sure. the, you know, the, uh-huh. for the show. And again, remind everybody, if you have questions for us, simply send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. Talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial, and we'll get these questions on. But we've got questions like, you know, what are the requirements to meet a person to qualify for the retirement and benefit. And that's, I would have thought that everybody knew that, but it's a very complicated subject for a lot of people. It is, it is, and we can get into that as time allows, but the, all each of those have a lot of little restrictions, and they add things to the code all the time, which makes it, that's what makes it so complicated. And I know you spend a lot of time counseling people, working with them, and, and, and guiding them through the maze of doing that, and again, that's a tough subject for a lot of people, and I just know 
We want to help you get through that process. So I guess uh, if, I, if I had to describe some of the questions, the frequently asked questions for Social Security, one of them being when do I, compl- when do I, actually, when do I actually start my Social Security? That's one that's there all the time. It is, and that's the one that people fail at most, uh, that you can start it as early as age 62, unless it's a survivor benefit, which you could start receiving at 60. And the the problem with most people, that is the number one problem Mm. that people make in financial planning usually is they start receiving that benefit way too early because those benefits continue to increase about 8% a year as long as they continue to wait. Wow. 8% a year. And I know a lot of questions about I'm divorced. Am I eligible? And uh, that's one of the questions I know that we want to answer when we get back. If you just tuned in, I'm Jim Shoemaker. We have Ted Miner. He's talking about Social Security, and we're going to dive into your questions that you've asked us, and we're going to do that when we get back. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Ted Miner. Hey, Ted Miner. <laughs> this is Talk Money. <laughs> Neither Shoemaker Financial nor Securian Financial Services are affiliated with Kurt Zarnowski or Zarnowski Consulting. The views and opinions expressed are those of Kurt Zarnowski only and have not been presented on behalf of or endorsed by Securian Financial Services Incorporated or Shoemaker Financial. Welcome back. I'm Jim Shoemaker. We're talking with Ted Minard. Want to remind Jim, coming up, you're going to listen to the opinions of Truth Johnson when it comes to the stock market. And he is opinionated, and you do not want to miss that. That is just, it's going to be, I'm actually going to leave right in the middle and go out in the car and listen from there. This is great stuff. It's about the stock market. It's about what you want to know if you're investing in a mutual fund or individual stocks. You do not want to miss that part of the program. But my guest, Ted Miner, retirement income certified professional. Ted, you were talking about something called the restricted application. It, it's, it's complicated. It sounds complicated, but you've actually worked through this with some people as a retirement income certified professional where you've helped them kind of manage that. So describe that for me. What, give us an actual case. Well, yeah, let me talk through one that actually occurred with me. Uh, as you're because the RICP, the Retired Income Certified Professional, one of the things that we're looking for is all the opportunities for income in retirement. And I had an individual I was I was talking to, and each of these things that I'm listing are are different things he has to qualify for to receive this benefit. Number one was the age that I just uh, just mentioned to you, the fact that he was born before 1954, so he qualified for that. But as I was talking to him, I found out that he had he was divorced. He had been divorced for two years. And uh, he, had, he had been married for 10 years. So that qualified for the spousal benefit as long as he was not remarried and he was not remarried. Now, we weren't investigating this for income. I just found this out just by talking to him. There is no way he would have even known that he, would, he, he qualified for this. But in talking to him, I told him, I said, did you know that you, because of your age, could file a restricted application and you can file with the government to receive your spousal benefit from your ex-wife and he said no i had no idea i said did she have a good income he said yes she did come to find out he was able to receive thirteen thousand dollars a year for four years over fifty thousand dollars and he had no knowledge of it whatsoever and then he's not yet he's not yet 70 when he turns 70 he will be able to then turn on his individual benefit and which is which is much much higher 
But he wasn't going to turn on any Social Security at all until he reached 70. He had no idea he had that benefit. So the benefit is he picked up the do- the dollars during this period of time, and then he didn't have to start his, and he gets the 8% increase in his every year while he delays. That's correct. Now, it was only good for him because of his age. That is not for the normal person. But if there was one thing, Jim, that I, if I could stand at the top of a mountain and try to try to reach people to work with, I would start talking to people who are 68 years old to this year and ask them those questions to see if there's any way at all that this restricted application could work for them to give them more income than what they're receiving right now. My guest, Ted Miner, Retirement Income Certified Professional. You can reach him, 757-5757, if you'd like to talk to him. Ted, one of the questions that we've gotten from some of our listeners, their frequently asked questions, was if they retire early, what happens? What you know? Tell, kind of give me the penalties or the pluses from retiring early when it deals with Social Security. Their question was, "Am I penalized for retiring early?" Well, you're not penalized for retiring early, but uh, let me explain first of all the statement that you get when you receive a statement from the from the government. You go on to www.ssa.socialsecurityadministration.gov. And you receive your statement because that's really, and I would I would really suggest that anybody that's looking into Social Security, they need to go there and register. They need to look at their benefit, know what that benefit is. So let's say at age 55, they go on there and they look at their benefit and they see that they're, they qualify for $1,300 a month starting at age 62. And it'll tell them 62 is the first first year that they can take that requirement or take their, uh, their uh, Social Security or they can wait to their full retirement age which are in most cases is 67 now or age 70. Those are three ages they give you the benefit number for. 62 is, of course, discounted quite a bit from where your full retirement age is. But when they calculate those benefits online, they're assuming something. They're assuming that you will make exactly what the last recorded uh, income was that they have in your history. And the history is right there on the form. Uh, you can A person is 55. If their records are up to date, they would have their income at age 54 when they filed their last income tax, and they would have used that number to calculate the benefit at 62, 67, and 70. And if they continued to work and made that same income, then they have calculated the benefit for them. If they were to stop working at 55, it's not a penalty, but they did not continue working those five or six extra years, which was used in their calculation. The actual calculation for their benefit is based on their 35 best years, and those 35 best years are indexed. So, for example, what you make in 1980, maybe making $40,000 in 1980 is equivalent to making $80,000 today. They index it, and they calculate your benefit on those best 35 years. And if you don't have 35 years, zeros go into those other years to calculate that benefit. And so those zeros really do hurt that amount from if you retire. I think what was this question was because the person going through the pandemic offered the retirement and decided to retire, and now they're looking at this. And I think it's a very valid question for a lot of our listeners. Even for people not calcul- uh, not uh, retiring early, I get people that are maybe 68, and they say, what's it worth for me my Social Security if I continue working at 69 and 70? Well, what I have to do to really answer that question is I have to look at their work record. If I look at their work record and they got 35 good years of income, it's really not going to have a great, great impact on, on the change of, of, of what it does. But if I look at it and they got some zeros in the calculation or they got some really low years, it could impact it 2 or 3%, which would be significant over, over 20, 30 year of retirement period. All right. The second question I think is from a listener, and I understand what they're asking. It says, how does a, a delayed retirement benefit 
That's what we talk about a lot. When you talk about Social mm-hmm. Security, we talk about the effect a widow's or a widower's benefit. Okay, the, the survivor benefit. The survivor <clears throat> benefit. Which and is I the, think it's a good question. I think they're asking something oh, that has an impact to, to the dollars. And as Kurt talks about it, it's a defined benefit plan. You're going to get them out. It's going to have Social Security. But how do I know to manage it? Well, they may be asking this question for two reasons, Jim, because a lot of time when I'm talking to people, I encourage the higher wage earner to wait. In most cases, some cases there is different. But and and sometimes you may even get the the other spouse looking and say, "We need that income now. Why do I really want him to wait till 70 to turn it on when we could turn it on now? When he's 68, it's a pretty substantial amount." Here's the reason why we encourage them to wait because especially if there's a huge age differential. The uh, the survivor benefit of the lower uh, earning spouse if the if the higher income earning spouse passes away uh, first, then his benefit is the one that goes to his spouse, okay? She or he will get the highest benefit as a survivor. So to increase that benefit to as much as we can, uh, we wait till age 70 because, as we mentioned before, that benefit's going up about 8% a year in those years. And so he's not looking at just his age and his time horizon. He's looking at the time horizon of of both of them. So if, if he's six, seven, eight years older than, I'll, I'll say wife because women usually live longer, then there may be a period of time or 10 or 12 years that she's receiving that benefit and him not being around. So we want to maximize it as much as possible. And it goes up about 8% a year. And that is so critical mm-hmm. when we deal with that. And I think that's people need to understand that there's tons of questions and we don't have time. That's correct. But we'll get to them, right? <laughs> yeah. What we'll do is have you back because there's just we get a lot of questions. And again, remind you, if you've got a question for us, especially about Social Security or anything, we're going to talk with somebody about the stock market. And somebody's actually asked a question to get us into that. But if you've got a question, send it to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. Talk money at shoemakerfinancial.com. Now, I want to ask this question real just just to finish it up, Ted. I want you to stay with me. I know you know, Kurt talked about the COLA, but there's something that's kind of in the works called the COLA or CPIE. Yeah, there, there has been for a long time, there has been discussion that the, the index that they use really does not pertain to the seniors, to the elderly, the ones that are older, older than 70. The ones that are, well, the ones that are on, on Social Security, okay. the ones All that right. are collecting okay. Social right. Security. So, so what they have done is they have, they have another index that's called the CPIE for the elderly. And they have found out that over the past 10 or 12 years that that index is actually about 0.2%. I think it averages 3.1, where the CPIW that Kurt talked about has averaged 2.9. So it would yield a little bit higher increase to the elderly if they use that index. And there's actually a bill called the Fair Cola for Seniors Act of 2021 that's actually before the that they're working on right We're now. Before Congress now, we'll talk some more about that and see if it passes because I think that's important. I want to kind of end this part of the program. I got to let everybody know. If you know somebody with Alzheimer's, let me say this. There's a drug that's out called a Julem, and it's a drug that, that fights Alzheimer's, and it's priced at $56,000 a year. Estimated that the 5.8 million Medicare-eligible adults, guys, ready for this, that would be taking this drug, a Julem, I'm pronouncing it, I hope, correctly, it would cost the federal government, the Medicare, just Medicare, 3345 billion dollars a year every year (laughs) (laughs) okay 
No comment. We'll talk about that. I'm stunned. I'm stunned. All of us are. Coming up, some differences between stock market and gambling. Believe it or not, they're very different. And our guest, Drew Johnson, is going to walk us through specifics about why you need to understand what you do when you're investing in the stock market. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Welcome back. I'm Jim Shoemaker. By the way, Ted, before we move on to stock market and gambling and the difference between, I just got to ask, the guy that you did the restricted application for with Social Security, did you ever work with him after that? I mean, that was a big deal. I I tell you what, Jim, he did not believe that he was going to receive that money. And actually, until he received his first check, when he got his first (laughs) check, it's a true story. After he received his first check, he called me and he says, you know, I think I need to work with you. <laughs> that so. makes a lot of sense. That's great, Thank man. You. Mm-hmm. you know, it's reality. Social Security is a complicated subject, but so is the stock market. My guest, Drew Johnson, he heads up the Investment Committee for Shoemaker Financial. And, and you know, I, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Jim. And you are opinionated. Well, I think, you know, we'll let the listener decide if the oh, rumors of my opinionatedness are exaggerated. You're but, no, <laughs> but you know what, Drew, I appreciate it so much, man, because be honest with you, I think the market can be so difficult, so emotionally involved. We talk a lot of times about just the emotions of the market, the fact that the media beats the market up. But what I appreciate from you is the fundamentals. You know the fundamentals extremely well. And the fact that you are, and and I'm laying all jokes aside, not kidding at all, the opinions, the opinionation, you might say, as, as I think about it, is so vital to be an investor. You have to have that kind of that mindset. You can't let the emotions waffle, you know, all those things beat you up. So I appreciate your opinion, sir. Well, thank you. All right. Now, let me ask you this question. Is the stock market investing in the stock market? This is the question. Okay. I mean, this is from a client and gambling the same thing. Well, I'm going to start the answer to that by, uh, you know, in keeping with the day's tradition of quoting Yogi Berra and saying that uh, the future ain't what it used to be. You know, if when you when you look at at the way that a lot of uh, a lot of stock market investing is done today with uh, with smartphones and, and online trading and such, it looks and feels more like a game in many ways than it ever has before. It wasn't all that long ago that you would pick up a newspaper and look at that section to find out what the stock prices were. It really was not all that long ago. No, it wasn't. Uh, and that's, we don't have to go into the details of that either, okay? No, 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 no. <laughs> but you know, it's, it, it has changed rapidly, and you are, you are trained by the technology that's out there now to, to think of it as if it is a game and to think of it as if, as if it's gambling. But when you are participating in the stock market, it is not like going to a casino and you're just putting money down and then seeing what, what it spits back out. You are taking part of ownership in actual companies that are doing real business, selling real products and real services to real people and making real money doing it. And you are participating in those profits as well as those losses. And once you're once you're in it, you know, even if you say, you know, I want to I want to sell what I've bought, I want to be out of the market. Well, I mean, you're still not off the hook because whatever profits you might have made from the time you were in, uh, you're you're going to owe taxes on those on those profits as well. And so it's your your participation is not purely up to you. 
uh, once you decide you want to participate in the market. But the key thing is that it is ownership. It is not merely playing a game. You are a part owner of the company and you have rights and obligations that come with that ownership stake. I appreciate you defining it that way too, Drew, because I think, I know the person that's asking the question, I don't know the person, but I'm, I'm thinking the person's asking the question, they, they feel like they don't have control. And even though you may own stock, you don't control the company, but because you own the stock, you're really participating. You get particular individual things about the company that you know about. And and we look at that a lot when we talk about the stock market is knowing maybe the board, knowing the what their what their driving force is. Those are things you're talking about that you don't do if you're playing, you know, a game like gambling or something like that. It's just not the same. Nowhere close. Right. I mean you're you're studying and getting to know, you know, who the executives are, you're getting to know what the company's outlook is. You want to know what consumer trends are. You know, whether this is get, what they're selling now is going to be something that's going to be profitable in the future. All of those things are things you're going to want to know if you're an investor. Okay, that's the key word, investor versus playing a game. Now let's talk about the real issue, I think, behind this question. I don't like the risk of being an investor. Talk about risk, buying stock, what do you say to people? Well, there, there are two of them that you want to consider mainly. Uh, one is the, the risk of each individual company that's represented uh, by the stock. Uh, the simple fact is companies go bankrupt all the time. Companies can fail. Even big companies can fail. Uh, that happens. And that has to be something that you're aware of whenever you're going in and you're, and you're buying a stock and the intent is to, to own the company. Uh, the second thing is that you could have a perfectly good company that's doing good business uh, and, and has good products, good sales, and so forth. Uh, but for whatever reason, the stock market as a whole is affected. The economy could go into a recession. There could, you know, God forbid, be you know, a natural disaster or, or a, a terrorist attack like what we saw with 9-11. And you could have had perfectly good companies, but because consumer and investor sentiment has dropped because of fear of the unknown or fear of, of what's already happened, that can adversely impact stocks as a whole as well. Uh, and, th- and those are just risks that you, you really you, you can try to mitigate in certain ways through through diversification and through and through owning a broad spectrum of investments, but you can't totally escape them. So if we're talking about and the reality, the person asking the question, and we have another question coming up, but the, the person asking this question is stock market and gambling the same. You're absolutely right. That's no way, no comparison. But some people put that in their mind. Mitigating risk. You said diversification. That's buying multiple levels of stock and it can be large cap stocks values growth can be foreign stocks or whatever so diversification is not just buying a bunch of companies it's actually buying different in different investment philosophies right it's 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 not having all of your eggs in in one basket you've got several different baskets and you've got different kinds of eggs in each of those baskets too uh, you don't want to own all, like if you had 10 companies, you don't want all of those 10 companies to all be in the same industry uh, because the, what's going to happen is generally those stocks are going to tend to behave the same way. Uh, and if they all go down, then you didn't, because they're in the same industry, you didn't get the benefit from owning more than one of them. What you want to do is you want to own companies from different, different industries uh, where if one of them goes down, well, the other one may may go up, and that helps to smooth out the ride, so to speak, of your investment 
experience. As the person who heads up the investment group there at Shoemaker Financial, I want to ask you this particular question. If you're going from buying an individual stock to buying a mutual fund where you're buying a set, you know, a group of stocks, what is your role? What do you see as helping the client in investing that? What What's the role of your, when you're in your chair, helping that person know what they're buying? It's a multifaceted, different layers of stocks. So what are you doing there? Well, we want to take a look at that manager. That, well, every mutual fund has a manager. I'll say that on the front end. There's one manager. There's a group of managers. I mean, we want to know what kind of support that manager has. Are there analysts that work for them? Do they have assistant managers that help them run the day-to-day operations of the fund? So we want to know things like that. Just how well is that fund run as a business in its own right? So the, the key there is, is they're, they're running a business buying stocks. They're not out there getting up in one morning and saying, hey, let's go buy this stock or that stock. They're really going through the analyst, analytical work to buy their stocks. Right. They're, they're in it They're in it not to lose. That's They're, they're in it to make money and to make a profit by it, in the being in the business of buying and owning stocks. So we want to know what kind of, uh, I mean, is it is it a well-run business? But then we also want to know uh, how consistent are they at delivering what they're saying they're trying to do. I mean, most, that they, most mutual funds have a specific mandate. They want to buy stocks of large U.S. companies or stocks of small international companies and so on. And we want to know how consistent are they at delivering on that and what is their performance and how does it measure up against their peers and has there been a lot of management turnover? Like those are all, and how expensive is the fund? We look at all of that when we're evaluating a fund manager. So close for me now, gambling versus the stock market, the guy's concern, what would you say? You've talked about allocation. What else would you say to any investor listening and you got about 20 seconds? Uh, you've got to know what you're willing to withstand. Uh, if you can't withstand uh, the, the kinds of moves that go with being all in stocks, then you ought to consider uh, being diversified away from stocks to some extent and bonds or real estate or, or other types of investments to help smooth out that ride. So what you're saying is you've got a lot of work to do. Don't just, if you're not an investor, if you're not good at it, you're not doing it a lot, instead of buying individual stocks, look at looking at a fund manager. Look at a fund manager and talk to a financial advisor. You've been listening to KWAM, the mighty 990 FM 107.9 and AM 990. My guest has been Ted Miner and Drew Johnson, of course, Kurt Zarnowski at the beginning of the program. If you'd like to talk to Ted or Drew, you can call them at 757-5757. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Drew. You guys did a great job. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Next week, Tiffany Bowders will be here with me and Jim Whitehead and Scott Jordan. We're going to talk about some estate planning basics and some things that you need to know about elder abuse and exploitation. You don't want to miss that. That's Wednesday, Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. and here on KWAM, the mighty 990. If you have questions, don't forget, send them to Shoemaker Financial. That's talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We're here every week helping you make the most of your money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Jim Shoemaker, Ted Miner, and Drew Johnson are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services Incorporated. Securities dealer, member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. 